0: Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we'll continue our discussion of the Third Caliph's reign, this time by actually talking about the man himself. See, unlike his predecessor, Uthman was very hands-off when it came to administrating the Ummah's growing lands, and so he didn't really come up much in our tour of the Caliphate, and his governors really hogged the limelight instead. All eyes are on the Caliph today, though, as we will go through the policy changes he enacted, how the Ummah reacted to them, and how he dealt with some early dissent. Episode 10, Othman in the Public Eye I recognize that we've somewhat loosened our commitment to chronology by breaking up our discussion of Othman into themes, but there's great value in maintaining chronological order today as it will help us understand how the caliph's reputation evolved over time, which should in turn help us make sense of the often biased reporting we get about this really controversial figure. He started off pretty well as the first caliph to have been voted into office by a council of his peers, other elders of Quraysh. He came from what was arguably the tribe's most prominent clan, the Umayyads, and two episodes ago we noted that there may have already been hardcore loyalists who agitated for his selection as caliph. By this point in history, most loyalists were men from smaller clans allied to more powerful ones, who sought their own welfare through that of their patrons. As a prominent clan, the Umayyads would have had a large number of these loyalists. To most other Muslims, Uthman was known as an early and favored follower of the Prophet twice made his son-in-law, and widely considered generous, gentle, and shy. By all accounts, a great reputation. The first year of Uthman's reign is sometimes referred to in our sources as the year of the nosebleeds, since the caliph's nose seemed to never stop bleeding. This may sound trivial and even a little funny, but we know it had the Arabs seriously worried because it was the first year in which the caliph did not lead the Hajj or the annual pilgrimage. As the ailing caliph recovered at home, he embarked on a project which would take him about two years to complete. True to his previous experience as a scribe or secretary, he went to work putting together all Muslim revelation into a single book. If you recall, Abu Bakr had been convinced to commission such a project by Omar after the loss of many Muslim reciters in battle, and we talked about this back in episode 4, and we mentioned that Abu Bakr had asked one of the Prophet's scribes, uh, Zayd bin Thabit, to collect all available transcriptions so that a master copy of Revelation could be made for safekeeping. The resulting book had become property of the caliph and Uthman used it as a first draft, asking Muslims across the caliphate to send him copies they considered most complete in their cities so that the multiple writings could be brought into harmony. See, the problem Uthman was trying to address was different from the one Omar and Abu Bakr had guarded against. The Ummah had grown so large that the oral material which made up the Qur'an was beginning to diverge in the caliphate's distant lands. To remedy this, Uthman and Zayd went through the various copies and agreed on a comprehensive version to send out to the provinces before destroying all the other copies they had received. While this destruction of the other copies did earn Uthman some criticism, overall his collection of the Qur'an was viewed overwhelmingly positively, especially later on. He was on solid ground as far as motive was concerned. Revelation sort of refers to itself as a book called the Qur'an, and this was a project started by the previous caliphs. Who better to complete it than the two men who had served as secretaries to the Prophet, men well known for their literacy and knowledge of Revelation? The fact that this undertaking was required at all tells us how overwhelmingly oral the Arabic language was at that stage, and how unreliable its script was for the transmission of religion. The conventional nature of commercial documents, military orders, and public announcements made them easy to deliver in writing, but revelation was too nuanced for the script to handle. The Arabic script would have to undergo three major revisions before becoming capable of supporting a budding civilization, and the first of these was still a few decades away. So a couple years in, and Othman's popularity was more or less unblemished. Sure, the caliph had displayed some preference for his own kin and loyalists with his empowering of Muawiyah and Abdullah bin Abi Sarh in Syria and Egypt respectively, but few Arabs were complaining about this nepotism while things were still going so well. In fact, at least some Arabs seem to have enjoyed being ruled by a caliph less austere than Omar, as for the first time we hear about mansions, slaves, and luxuries in Medina. Many early Muslims, whom Omar had urged to remain in the Prophet's city to keep to their ways, now left the capital for the frontiers of the Caliphate, where they were celebrated like storied heroes. Qurayshis especially could expect to find tribes eager to build ties with them wherever they went, giving them a ready road to money and power all across the growing Caliphate. Over the coming years, more of the Ansar who, as a reminder, were the earliest non-Mekkan Muslims and so they were not from Quraish, also left Medina, and though the majority of them picked Kufa for their new home. One fateful day, into this rosy portrait of a caliphate, walked three Umayyad men. These weren't any three Umayyads. These were Uthman's uncle, al-Hakam, and his two sons, al-Harith, and Marwan. The three had come from the city of Ta'if, to which they had been banished by the Prophet about fifteen years earlier. Othman's uncle at Hakam had been one of Islam's most hardcore original opponents, personally attacking both his nephew Othman and the Prophet on several occasions. Despite all this, Muhammad had pardoned him after taking Mecca, in large part thanks to Othman's intercession. Al Hakam, however, refused to change his ways, and the sources charge him with various acts of disrespect towards the Prophet, ranging from the creepy trying to peep on him in his tent at night, to the funnier making faces behind his back. What exactly led to his banishment goes unsaid, but we're left with the sense that al-Hakam was a member of the old Qurayshi aristocracy who refused to adjust to the new order. Some sources critical of Uthman depict this event I just described sensationally one saying that the three Umayyads walked into the caliph's house dressed in flea-infested rags and walked out in shiny silks as the people of Medina stared on at a loss for words. Another reports the people angrily interrogating their caliph, asking him why he allowed those banished by the Prophet to return. In those narrations, the caliph responds saying he had asked the Prophet to pardon them before he died, that Muhammad promised he would but never got around to it. Sometimes they go on to describe how Othman had asked the two previous caliphs to pardon his kin and that he had been rebuffed both times. One source goes even further and says that Umar forbade the Arabs from naming their children al-Hakam because he found the name to be sacrilegious. Despite these various charged narrations, I personally doubt that the significance of this event was immediately obvious. I think it was ignored much as the rest of the caliph's early nepotism was. I believe later historians magnified it, kind of like I am now, because they knew how disruptive the arrival of these Umayyads would prove to be. Just like how different clans competed for supremacy within a single tribe, different houses did the same within each clan. Now that the caliph was an Umayyad who was being very generous to his clansmen, the return of Uthman's uncle al-Hakam meant that another branch of the family was entering this dynamic. While all three of them were treated very well by Uthman, Marwan was the clear favorite. It seems like, within a short time, the twenty-something-year-old became the caliph's personal secretary and closest advisor. Pro-Uthmanid sources depict Marwan as an intelligent and pious Muslim whose only real desire was to look after his much older cousin, whom he admired and respected. Hostile sources paint Marwan as a manipulative counselor whose self-serving advice Uthman often had a difficult time resisting, sort of like Gruma Wormtongue from The Lord of the Rings you'll have plenty of time to make up your mind about Marwan, and I'll just leave it at that. None of this is to say that Marwan's brother and father were ignored, they were given large mansions in the capital, and Al-Harith was entrusted with the management of its market. He made huge profits by hoarding goods and inflating prices, which led to so much unrest in Medina that the caliph had to have him replaced. Marwan was infamously granted a fifth of the plunder of Sufetullah, literally tons of gold though some sources report Othman walking that decision back, again, after protestations from the public. Finally, Othman cemented his ties to his cousins by marrying each of them to a daughter of his. Speaking of marriage, Othman transparently used the institution in its old tribal function, marrying often both before and after becoming caliph. The marriages he arranged for himself and his daughters are too many to comment on but one of the books listed on the podcast's website includes a handy 10-page summary of them if you're interested. Suffice it to say that he prioritized building ties with the pre-Islamic Qurayshi aristocracy, followed by other prominent tribes that had been neglected by the ummah thus far. You could argue, as some sympathetic sources do, that the caliph was just trying to cement the ummah's unity by bringing more tribes into the fold. The Prophet had done the same, and even Umar had married Ali and Fatima's daughter in order to bring the Hashemites closer to the Caliphate. But in effect, Uthman was centralizing power in Umayyad hands and undoing all of Umar's work on establishing sabiqa, or precedence in Islam, as the basis of political power and social prestige. In order to wield influence in Uthman's Caliphate, one had to be born noble in the pre-Islamic sense of the word. Despite all this nepotism, the empowerment of pre-Islamic elites, and the lavish spending going on in Medina, virtually no dissent is reported during the early years of Othman's reign. His destruction of a copy of Revelation owned by a prominent early Muslim, and his tearing down of some homes to expand the mosque in the city caused a little tension, but nothing substantial. The first mentions of serious discontent don't reach us until 650, half a dozen years into the caliph's reign, from the city of Kufa, which we declined to discuss in any detail last time. Kufa had started out as a simple military canton, founded by the early Muslim Sa'd bin Abi Waqqas. Sources agree that Uthman reappointed Sa'd as governor when he became caliph, some saying he did so immediately, while others that he waited a year. Within a single year of his appointment, however, Uthman had him replaced with the Umayyad al-Walid bin Aqba, a shocking choice for multiple reasons. Al-Walid, best known until then as the wine-loving poet of the Umayyads, had almost no Islamic credentials and he was to replace one of Muhammad's most esteemed Qurayshi supporters, one of the ten guaranteed paradise, no less. Al-Walid's earliest Islamic credentials were that his father was an early opponent of Islam, whom the Prophet insisted be executed after his capture during the Ummah's first battle at Badr. So, yeah, that bad. Most scandalously, however, his mother was Uthman's own mother, making him the Caliph's own half-brother. The armies of Kufa played their part in the fall of the Sasanid Empire, and during his five years in charge Al-Walid is credited with the pacification of Azerbaijan and Sasanid Armenia. He is best known, however, for the outrage that led to his dismissal, sparked by a heavily contested event as it involves him, a member of the Sahaba, the generation who had the honor of existing alongside the Prophet, behaving un-Islamically. To put it briefly, Al-Walid often partied at night and so he would sometimes be drunk when leading the dawn prayers. Al-Tabari's comprehensive history includes many an apologist's narration about how enemies of the faith, thwarted by al Walid's just rule, sought to spread false rumors of his p- praying drunk, though, strangely, none of them contest his general indulgence in wine. In any case, a delegation of Kufan notables went to speak to him one night and got angry when they found him wasted. They put him on a camel, telling him to go back to Medina, and a few of them wrote to the capital as well to make their protestations to the caliph in person. Othman is said to have disbelieved them when they came to him and to have dismissed them angrily. The caliph was perhaps hoping to deflect these charges and return his half-brother to his governorship over Kufa, sweeping away the whole embarrassing affair. The aggrieved Kufans were appalled and next went to Ali bin Abi Talib, who had garnered a reputation as the fairest judge in the Ummah and who, as Hashemite, presented a natural political counterweight to the Umayyad caliph. Ali took them back to Uthman and confronted him. He told the caliph that he had no right to overlook witness testimony and asked him to bring out the accused to face justice. Al-Walid did not contest the statements made against him and Ali told those gathered there that Islamic president dictated a sentence of 40 lashes to the guilty party. One source relates that nobody dared to whip Al-Walid due to his closeness to the caliph, who was seething at having his kin so openly humiliated, and so Ali himself dealt the punishment Al while Al Walid lashed back with some sharp poetry. The end result of this controversial episode was Al Walid's dismissal as governor, and his replacement with Said ibn As, another influential Umayyad and son in law to the caliph. In a final dig at Al Walid bin Akba, some sources say that the first order the new governor gave was that the mosque be washed thoroughly to get rid of any leftover party fluids, bodily or otherwise. For the next few years, Sa'id made a fine governor as far as the Kufans were concerned, and he led them into many campaigns in ex sasanid territory. The once restive city would not exhibit any notable unrest for years to come. But unfortunately for Othman, Kufa wasn't some rebellious outlier in an otherwise peaceful caliphate, and it's instructive for us to look at other examples of dissent from Syria and Egypt before moving on. In both provinces, Umayyad control had been firmly established for many years, and the discontent there seems to have stemmed from resentment towards official extravagance. For instance, the sheer luxury of a palace Muawiyah was having built for himself in Damascus so offended Abu Dharr al-Ghifari, a prominent early Muslim, that he made it his mission to go around the city all day denouncing the governor for his disgusting excess. Muawiyah is said to have written to the caliph asking him what to do with the guy, and Othman replied by summoning Abu Dharr to Medina. This is where sources differ sharply. Some saying the two prominent early Muslims spoke congenially and agreed that the rabble-rousing Ghaifari retired to die alone in the desert, while others write that Uthman had him beaten up and banished. At least in principle, the truth should lie somewhere in between. Our Egyptian example comes from some time later, after Uthman's eighth or ninth year at the helm. Abdullah bin Abi Sarh was still in charge, and he had gained some infamy for his merciless taxation and heavy favoritism many troops were disaffected, especially those who felt like the great amount of wealth he was reaping from the province was passing them by entirely. While we don't have an Abu Dhar al-Ghifari type figure here, we do have the young Muhammad bin Abi Bakr. The 20-year-old son of Abi Bakr, who had been raised by Ali bin Abi Talib, was a member of the troops in Fustat, and he seems to have been a fervent believer in his stepfather's unique right to rule the caliphate. His lineage and upbringing made him a natural rallying point for opposition to the Umayyads who were becoming increasingly unpopular in Egypt thanks to Abdullah ibn Abi Sarh's inept government. Finally, a quick example from the capital itself, this time involving Ammar ibn Yasir. I first mentioned Ammar in episode 7. He was the one whose overheard comment about his intention to pledge his allegiance to Ali ibn Abi Talib when the caliph passed away made Ammar give his speech about succession. If you've been paying attention so far, it should be clear to you that he was considered a Hashemite loyalist, and today he is a celebrated figure among Shia for his steadfast faithfulness to the Prophet's clan. He is said to have addressed those gathered at the mosque one day, telling them that the Umayyads were obviously planning on keeping the position of Caliph within their clan. He said that the Muslims had brought this on themselves by denying the Hashemites their proper place as leaders, and that the Arabs risked God's wrath until they righted this wrong. Uthman reacted to this mutinous speech by having Ammar beaten up outside the mosque. While this last story I presented has a crude ending and is difficult to endorse, something must have happened between Ammar and Uthman as many sources report friction between the two. What's also clear is that the treatment of Abu Dharr al-Ghifari and Ammar bin Yasir must have led to vocal criticism of the caliph as the two events are cited by almost all histories as leading to public outcries. Amr ibn al-As, ex-governor of Egypt, who had been bitter since his removal, is said to have laid into the Caliph hard, as did Aisha, wife of the Prophet and daughter of the first Caliph Abu Bakr, who had attained a sort of celebrity status for her closeness to the Ummah's two greatest patriarchs. These two celebrated Qurayshis were by no means the only Meccans publicly faulting Uthman, marking a clear shift in the Caliph's popularity. I want to dedicate the rest of this episode to discussing the Caliph's treasury which I feel contributed to his downfall more than all these other debacles I've been telling you about. Othman's take on his role as caliph was fundamentally different from the two men before him, and the contrast is sharpest when comparing their attitudes towards the treasury. You'll have to humor me for a bit as the changes he made are subtle and not spelled out directly anywhere in the sources. In fact, I've discussed the treasury at length in some previous episodes precisely to lay the groundwork for explaining the changes Othman made during his reign. Still, though, I'd feel more comfortable giving you a quick refresher before proceeding. So super briefly, the Prophet took a share of the Ummah's revenue, about 20%, and he mainly used the wealth as a social safety net for those who couldn't support themselves, orphans, slaves, widows, tribeless people, etc. Abu Bakr's treasury was exactly the Prophet's share of the community's wealth, and he distributed it precisely as the Prophet had done. Omar's treasury was a lot bigger than his predecessors and now included vast fertile lands captured from the empires to the north. These lands were a new element. Back in the desert, defeating a tribe did mean you could now use their pastures, but the fertile riverbanks weren't the kinds of lands a nomadic people could use. Omar chose to form garrison cities at the edges of the desert, tax the populations living in the conquered fertile lands, and put all the troops on the payroll from their revenue. He also paid out all his troops according to their contributions to Islam, ranking them by precedence in the religion. Leftover funds were often used to invest in canals and other agricultural infrastructure to increase local production, though a cut would usually reach Medina. Our sources also contain narrations about the caliphs which somewhat explain their choices around the treasury. Abu Bakr's insistence on doing things exactly as the Prophet had is the clearest illustration of his attitude towards his position as Caliph. Omar felt the need to explain all the changes he made in Islamic terms, and he is strongly applauded in the sources for his austerity, fairness, and piety, virtues he often praised the Prophet for embodying. Many of the narrations about these two Caliphs show that they thought of themselves as successors to the Prophet in the sense that they had the responsibility of safeguarding his legacy, While some are surely apocryphal, there are narrations of them lamenting the leadership of the community as a moral burden, and others of them pondering courses of action by wondering aloud how God would look upon them on Judgment Day. I guess my point here is, they regarded their power as caliphs to be dwarfed by their responsibilities towards their friend and prophet, Muhammad. It seems obvious to me that Othman did not feel the same and that his idea of what it meant to be caliph was more classically sovereign than either one of his predecessors. There are several clues to this, apart from the previously discussed promotion of his clansmen to positions of power and his tribal marital patterns, the clearest of which being his stance towards the treasury. Othman behaved as if the treasury was at his personal disposal, and he took unprecedented liberties with the vast wealth it now contained. I don't mean to depict Othman as greedy, Even his strongest critics have no stories that portray him that way. He continued to meet the financial obligations set by his predecessors as far as providing for those who couldn't support themselves and paying everyone what they'd received under Omar. His generosity to his kin had preceded his election as caliph and had a counterpart in his generosity to the Ummah in its earliest days, especially during its persecution. You may remember that when he pardoned Omar's murderous son, Abidallah, he said he'd pay the blood money out of his own pocket. Osman's attitude towards wealth contrasted as sharply as could be with Omar's austere interpretations of his responsibility towards the Ummah. pro Othmanid sources often say that all the gifts the Caliph made were from his own fabulous fortune, but there are obvious examples to the contrary. I've already mentioned Othman's granting a fifth of the booty taken from the Battle of Sufetullah to Marwan, such a clear case of giving away the Ummah's share of revenue that it's a decision many sources say the Caliph had to walk back, Uthman's more damning act of generosity came when he was building his ties to Sa'id ibn Rass, his Umayyad son-in-law whom he chose to replace at Walid ibn Akbar as governor of Kufa. The caliph gifted him almost a ton of gold, a gift so lavish that one of our sources contains the following colorful scene. A treasurer, one of the early Muslims, anxiously walks into the mosque while Othman was giving a speech or something, and he interrupts the caliph asking if it was true that he was to give all that money to Sa'id. And Othman responds curtly and tells him something like, it's not your job to second-guess orders, it's your job to follow them. And the guy just erupts with anger and indignation, and he throws the key at the caliph and he yells, I am not your treasurer, I am treasurer of the Muslims. And then he leaves. So this dramatic scene, it would have been bad enough, but the scandal did not end there. It causes so much talk in Medina about Uthman's spending that the council which elected him gets back together to stage an intervention. All five other members, Abdurrahman, rahman Saad, Talha, Subair, and Ali, are said to have convened to speak to Othman. Now, as a rule of thumb, I generally overlook any narrations which include a suspiciously high number of prominent Muslims, but this one is contextually reasonable, widely reported, and pretty short. The five asked Othman how he justifies his spending, and he replied by saying Abu Bakr and Omar sought virtue by withholding from their kin, whereas I seek it through being generous to them. When they informed him that they preferred the conduct of his predecessors, he said his conscience was clear and that he was prepared for God's judgment. I find it quite telling that Osman framed the behavior of his predecessors as a matter of choice rather than duty. It plainly reflects that he did not feel obliged to follow in their footsteps that as caliph he had the right to decide what it meant to lead the community. The way he saw it His predecessors had done what they wanted, and so now he could do what he wanted. Seeing how they were all prominent Muslims, closely associated with the Prophet, he felt like he could expect the same loyalty and obedience from the Arabs that Abu Bakr and Umar had received. Another interesting thing about this narration is that it suggests that the other members of the council felt that they had an influence on Uthman, maybe even a responsibility to exercise his influence. Their failure to change his behavior reveals how mistaken they were and it seems like they kept their distance from the caliph after this. I know we've already covered plenty today, but I want to squeeze in a short discussion of the other council members. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, whose vote all tellings agree was crucial to guaranteeing Othman his position, is said to have died a couple of years after this intervention. Multiple narrations report that he was still at odds with Othman, some saying that when the caliph came to see him on his deathbed, he turned away in anger. In a strong symbolic blow to Othman's legitimacy, he is said to have asked someone else to lead his funeral prayers, denying the caliph the privilege of overseeing the burial of a prominent early Muslim. Of course, as with almost everything else about Othman's controversial reign, there are other tellings which decry those first ones I mentioned as lies, and they paint a more positive picture of the caliph's relationship with the other Qurayshi leaders. As the council of men who had chosen a caliph from their own ranks, there was a kind of unspoken expectation that they would convene once more to pick another when Othman passed away. I don't mean to depict them as scheming political operatives, but a few of them had been sort of campaigning for a while, by which I meant they were aware of how important their influence and standing could be should another caliph need to be elected. Saad and al-Zubayr were popular in Kufa due to the many campaigns they'd fought with its men, Antalha was popular with the troops of Basra, where he owned a huge estate he often resided in. As leader of the Hashemites, Ali bin Abi Talib became a natural rallying figure for those newly disaffected by Umayyad rule, something we'll see a lot of in next episodes. Since Ali's supporters are the Muslims retrospectively considered Shia today, it is clear that this early in the game, the term was not a religious one, but still signaled a political preference for Hashemite leadership. Saad al zubayr and Talha had also become incredibly rich in the last decade under Uthman's rule. They profited greatly from the caliph's generosity and had been granted vast estates across the caliphate. Earlier, I focused on the liberties Uthman had taken with the money in the treasury, but this also applied to its lands. Since Umar considered the lands conquered by the Muslims to be part of the treasury, Uthman understood them to be entirely under his disposal. He would give these lands generously to his clansmen, their loyalists, in-laws, and other prominent tribal elites. While Omar kept the lands in the treasury and used its bounty to invest further in its agricultural infrastructure or as upkeep for its local armies, its wealth was now privately owned by men who were invariably related, allied, or important to the caliph in some way. The gifting of rich lands to already wealthy elites created resentment, especially among the poorest tribesmen in the Arab armies. There are also narrations about how Muawiyah had asked for the right to make gifts of the conquered lands in Syria after complaining that he couldn't adequately pay his commanders otherwise. The caliph acceded to his request, allowing him to give Syrian lands away as he saw fit, greatly increasing the governor's sway over his province. I've squeezed a lot in today and this is a good point for us to wrap up. We've touched on all the major events mentioned across the sources and established a good understanding of the basis of the opposition to Othman's rule. There will be a couple more fiascos to discuss, and they'll transform all this dissent we've been talking about into an open rebellion. This and more next time on The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.